today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. are where things grow. You don't grow fruit on the mountaintop, you grow it in the valley where it is lush and green and fertile. And some of the most important things that you and I will learn and some of the greatest growth that you will experience is in the valleys. The hardships, the trials, the difficulties that you experience in the valley will bear fruit that you will eventually eat on the mountain, but it's in the valley where those things are grown. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Nehemiah. No one enjoys going through a spiritual valley. We wish we could just jump from mountaintop to mountaintop in life, but the reality is that we can't, and we'd actually miss out on important things that we can only get in those valleys. If you feel like you're going through one right now, then today's message will encourage you. Pastor Gary teaches on how valleys are the places where spiritual battles are fought and won. It's the place where we truly grow and bear fruit. So next time you're feeling low, hang in there. Let God do His perfect work. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in Nehemiah 3 for part two of today's message titled, Examining Our Gates, Truth and Trials. Jeremiah says, stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask for the reliable truth. Ask for the wisdom of God. And walk in that good way, and then you will find rest for your souls. Truth is an important thing for all of us to understand. And there are four things quickly that I want to just share with you. First of all, truth is enduring. Real, genuine truth is enduring. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Forever. Truth is unchanging. Psalm 119, verse 89, it says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Number three, truth is liberating. In John 8, 31 to 32, it says, To the Jews who had believed in Jesus, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. It's liberating. It's liberating to come into relationship with Jesus. It is life-changing. And then fourthly, truth is defined by God. We don't get to decide what is right, what is wrong, friends. This is something God has determined. And it tells us in Isaiah 45, 19, I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Truth does not become out of date or out of touch or antiquated. It is enduring, it is unchanging, and it is reliable for all people for all time. The truth is being assaulted in our day. It is. Truth is being assaulted in our day. Our day is not much different than the days of Isaiah the prophet. 
Because Isaiah prophesied against the Israelites and he said, listen, the Assyrians are going to come against you. Why? Because you've discarded truth. And the nation will crumble because of a lack of respect and regard for the truth of God. That God would have mercy on them and would rebuild the people of Israel. But listen to the prophecy of Isaiah that is eerily similar to a description of our own cultural condition today. Isaiah 59, 14 and 15. So justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the street. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. Listen to that. He says, truth is stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And if you live a life that shuns evil, people will prey on you. They will attack you. They will think that you're weird and you're out of date. You're antiquated because you follow a truth that is never changing. Truth is stumbled in our streets as well. Honesty cannot enter in. Truth is nowhere to be found. There is a loud silence of the absence of truth in our day. It's haunting. And here's some sad statistics. A majority of Americans, according to two national surveys conducted by the Barna Research Group, a majority of Americans no longer believe in absolute moral truth. According to these two national surveys, Adults in one survey, teenagers in the second survey, they were asked if they believe that there are moral absolutes that are unchanging or whether moral truth is relative to the circumstance. So that's the question posed. Do you think that there are certain things that are always right and always wrong? Or do you think that those things will change depending on your circumstance? Three to one in the adult range. The adults, three to one, 64% versus 22% of adults said that truth is always relative to the person and their situation. And even more lopsided was the response of the teenagers. 83% of teenagers said moral truth depends on the circumstances and only 6% said moral truth is absolute. We got our work cut out for us, friends. We got our work cut out for us. Because we're living in a day now where a majority of Americans, adults and teenagers, say that there's no such thing as really right and wrong, that it's just what you make it. The rules are what you determine. What is right and wrong is what you decide. You get to live your life according to your own standard. And we've abandoned a standard of absolute moral truth in our culture. People today, they'll believe in absolute truth when it comes to math, just not when it comes to morality. You ask somebody, is two plus two four? You'll get an agreement every time. They will believe in the absolute truth of math. They will believe in the law of gravity. They will believe in the law of aerodynamics. But you begin to ask them about the law of morality, they'll look at you like you have three eyes. Like, what are you talking about? There's no set standard of rules. There's no one determination of right and wrong. People want to make up their own rules these days, and they want to define their own truth. And here's why I am alarmed at the political term progressive. Because like my antenna go up and I'm like, progressive, what are you progressing toward and what are you progressing away from? What does that mean? 
Now, I like progress like the next person, all right? I love progress, okay? I like my cell phone. I like my cell phone. Maybe too much. I like my cell phone. I like the convenience of it. I like the progress of technology. I like advancement in medicine, that kind of progress that's wonderful, that benefits people around the world. I like all kinds of progress. I like, not that I drive new cars, but I like new cars and Bluetooth technology. I like that kind of thing. It's wonderful. I like progress. Here's something simple. I like the progress of being able to change the channel on my television without getting up from the couch. <laughs> I'm serious because I can remember the day. How many of you remember the day when you had to get up from your chair to actually change the channel on the television? Now, you know, if you don't appreciate it, it's because you're not old, all right? <laughs> And I mean old in the sense of durable, reliable, valuable. <laughs> but I can seriously remember. And there was only four channels anyway. <laughs> so you couldn't get up very many times. But it's incredible. You know, listen, I love technology and I love advancement and progress and all these kind of things, okay? But I can tell you, listen to me on this, progressive is a buzzword for social progressiveness. It's the idea that we must alter our standards and values to adapt to an ever-changing moral landscape. That's what it means. That's what it means. We must alter our morals and our standards to adapt to an ever-changing moral landscape. But by the way, it's an ever-changing moral landscape. You continue to do that, you will have neither morals and standards nor a culture. You'll have neither. You keep abandoning truth, it will be the demise of a culture. Ask an ancient Roman from the Roman Empire. Oops, you can't. You study Roman history, part of the collapse of the Roman Empire had to do with the total disregard of moral absolute truth. It was just crazy debauchery and all kinds of stuff that was happening. It led in part to the demise of the Roman Empire. Look at what happened at the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Ask somebody from that day. Oops, you can't. Okay? So as the culture trends, listen, we must, as the church continue to stand for truth, to declare truth, to live truth in a very relative and subjective world. Let me bring this to home, and this might be a little, you know, sensitive, but our Virginia Attorney General, when he was in the Virginia Senate, voted in favor of a constitutional amendment to the Commonwealth of Virginia defining marriage between a man and a woman. And then when he became Attorney General, he led the charge to undo that. Why does somebody do that? Why does somebody go from a person of principle to a cultural chameleon? I'll tell you why. Because they decide the shifting winds decide to shift my principles. We must not be like that. We must be people of principle who understand what truth is and we stand for truth despite how the culture will change. We do not change truth to keep up with the culture. We keep up with the truth to change the culture. You understand the difference? And that's why this old gate is a very important reminder to us. It reminds us of truth. We must continue to live by, stand for, and share with others absolute biblical truth in a time when truth is becoming increasingly subjective and relative. I know that's a mouthful, but listen, I'm going to read it again. We must continue to live by, stand for, and share with others absolute biblical truth in a time when truth is becoming increasingly subjective and relative. It's quiet in here. Everybody all right? This is important, friends. Our culture is going to continue to change. 
we have to be the influence for our culture. The church has to be a place of truth. It starts with us. We have to live it. We have to stand for it. We have to share it with others. Because we believe that it is unchanging, enduring, liberating, and it is defined by God. We come next to the valley gate. As you go counterclockwise around the city, the last gate we'll look at for this morning is the valley gate. It's found in chapter 3, verse 13. This is what it says. Underline it in your Bibles. The valley gate was repaired by Hanun and the residents of Zenoa. They rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. They also repaired 500 yards of the wall as far as the dung gate. Well, that's an interesting gate. <laughs> next, we'll talk about the dung gate. We'll... We'll get to the bottom of it. Um, <laughs> lighten up. Come on. We need to laugh a little bit. All right. Anyway, we're here at the Valley Gate. It's verse 13. And as we go counterclockwise around the city, it's the fourth gate on the list. It is the Valley Gate. And it is the only gate on the southwest side of Jerusalem. And as its name suggests, it opens up to a valley. There are three main valleys that encompass the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built on a cluster of mountains. It is built on one particular peak, Mount Moriah, but it has Mount Zion and Mount of Olives on the other sides of it, and so it forms three natural valleys. The Kidron Valley goes along the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem, the Tyropian Valley on the western side of the city of Jerusalem, and then further west and swings all the way down to the southern side is the Valley of Hinnom. All three of these valleys there outline the city of Jerusalem. Now, what is very fascinating, and many of you might already know this, is that the imprint of these valleys makes the same shape as the Hebrew letter Shin. The Hebrew letter Shin by itself is often used as a designation for the name of God because Shin is the first letter in the word Shaddai, meaning Almighty. It is the first letter in the word shalom, peace. It is the first letter in the word shekinah, shekinah, the glory of God. So Jews today will sometimes use the letter shin by itself descriptive of the name of God. And what is interesting is that God said in 2 Kings 21.4, listen to this. He says, in Jerusalem, I will put my name. In Jerusalem, I will put my name. And it's as if the very handprint of God is on Jerusalem. And here's some extra trivia information for those of you. Again, we dispense all kinds of free stuff here at Cornerstone. No extra charge. But many of you, how many of you are familiar with the whole Star Trek series and the Spock character, Mr. Spock? Let me see your hands. Come on, don't be ashamed. I know some of you are like, I don't think I want people to know I'm a Trekkie. It's all right. You don't have to be a Trekkie. I'm just asking if you know the character Mr. Spock. Now, you're familiar, of course, with his hand, the Vulcan hand motion, okay? His greeting. Leonard Nimoy was Jewish. He died just last year. And he gave this hand signal as a sign of the letter Shin. And he says by his own testimony that it was because as a little boy in synagogue, when they were giving the blessing, the benediction at the end of the service, he looked up, and you're not supposed to look at the time, he says, because there was this belief that the Shekinah glory would come into the synagogue when the rabbis were giving the final benediction. But he said, I looked up, and he said, I saw my rabbi with his hands in the shape of the letter Shin. And he said, I adapted that for Star Trek so that whenever I would greet someone, that's why I lived long and prosperous actually something he did from a spiritual standpoint of the letter shin it's free information for you folks let's get back to the study and if you don't believe me go google that one too i can't get away with anything now with google but it's true it is true 
This gate here, the valley gate, opens up onto the Tyropian Valley. The Tyropian Valley is also known as the Central Valley. It was a very rugged ravine, and over the years and centuries, as Jerusalem was built and rebuilt, and the debris of the city basically started to fill in the Central Valley, and the Tyropian Valley today is almost level. It's harder to distinguish, but back in the day, it was a very steep and rugged ravine. And valleys are literally and metaphorically the low points. They're the low points. And in Scripture, they often describe the low points of our life. You know, we talk in these terms. We talk about how when things are going well, I'm on the mountaintop. We talk about when things are not going well, I'm in the valleys. And probably no greater, more emotional expression of being in the valley than what David wrote in Psalm 23. Verse 4, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Valleys are often portrayed as the low points of life. Life, generally speaking, is a series of both mountaintops and valleys. It is unrealistic to think that you will always be in the mountain. And hopefully, you don't find your life always in the valley. People sometimes find themselves in long, protracted seasons of being in the valley. It's very discouraging, and it's very hard. But I want to point out two things about the valley, and especially for those of you who are in the valley right now of some kind in your own life. The first one is this. Valleys are where battles are fought and won. Nobody fights battles on a mountain, okay? Not intentionally. Now, those of you who have, you know, seen combat, you know to be true that in any kind of a military campaign, you do try to get higher ground because higher elevation is more strategic. But by and large, you're not fighting on the slopes of a mountain. Most battles are fought in the valley, and that's also where those battles are won. Napoleon looked out over the Great Valley, the Jezreel Valley in Jerusalem. He stood on Mount Megiddo, and he looked out over the Jezreel Valley, which is also the Valley of Megiddo, which is where the great battle of Armageddon will one day be fought. And I don't know if he didn't understand Scripture or he was just talking out of his own, you know, vainglory, the desire of fighting more battles. But he looked out over the valley of Megiddo and he said, this, this would be the world's greatest battlefield. Thank you, French fry. Listen, Armageddon is going to be fought there. What in the world are you talking about? But the valley is a place where most battles are fought. Not on the mountaintops. And in the valley is where you will find sometimes the greatest, most excruciating difficulties of your life. But it will also be the place where God will show himself strong. There's a story in 1 Kings chapter 20. I want to summarize real quickly because we're almost out of time. But in this occasion, the Arameans were fighting against the Israelites. Ben-Hadad was the general of the Arameans, which is also an ancient word for Syrians. They had attacked the Israelites and the Israelites were victorious. The Arameans go back home with their tail between their legs, and Ben-Hadad circles his military officials around him and says, you know what, I think that the only reason why the Israelites won is because we were more in the valley, and they had the strategic edge because they were up on the side of the hill. That's why they won. We need to go back and fight them again, and this time we'll get the victory. And God, of course, overheard this. He overhears everything. And God sends one of his prophets, it's an unnamed prophet in 1 Kings chapter 20, and he tells this prophet, you go to the king of Israel, and you say this, the king at the time was Ahab, this is what the Lord says, 1 Kings 20 verse 28, because the Arameans think 
The Lord is the God of the hills and not a God of the valleys. I will deliver this vast army into your hands and you will know that I am the Lord. God says, I ever heard what they said. They think the only reason why you Israelites won is because you had the advantage of the hill. And I want them to know and I want everyone to know, God is saying indirectly here, that he is the God not just of the hills, not just of the mountaintop experiences, but he is also the God of your valleys. And he is the one who will never leave you nor forsake you. And he will show himself strong to you. And he will help you have victory over whatever right now you're in the midst of in that valley. Because God is the God not just of the mountains, but also of the valleys. Amen? The second thing important to note is that valleys are where things grow. You don't grow fruit on the mountaintop. You grow it in the valley where it is lush and green and fertile. And some of the most important things that you and I will learn and some of the greatest growth that you will experience is in the valleys. The hardships, the trials, the difficulties that you experience in the valley will bear fruit that you will eventually eat on the mountain. But it's in the valley where those things are grown. Galatians 6, 9, Paul says, Let us not become weary in doing well. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest. There will be fruitfulness to this, he says, if we don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up in that valley experience. David had his valleys. Job had his valleys. Hannah had her valleys. Paul had his valleys. Jesus had his valleys. There are some times that you might experience a valley of trials a valley of testing, a valley of discouragement, of betrayal, of loneliness, of grief. There are all kinds of valleys. Paul even said in 2 Corinthians 1, 9, he says, Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. Paul says, I was going through so much hardship that I even felt like dying. He says, But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. In other words, he says, I felt like death inside, but I trusted God because in the process he was teaching me something. He was teaching me to rely less on myself and more on him. And by the way, even though I feel like death on the inside, God is the one who raises the dead, so I'm going to look to him and trust him. It's important for some of you to hear because you're in that valley. God says in Psalm 34, 18, that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And so, friends, the valley gate reminds us of trials, that we must continue to present the hope of Jesus to those who are experiencing the lows of the valley. That's why Paul said in Romans 5 that we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that there's fruitful production from it. Our sufferings produce perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character hope. And he says, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by his Holy Spirit. So there is eventual hope that we hold on to, but in the midst of the valley, please remember, God is not just the God of the mountains, but he is also the God of our valleys. Nehemiah faced a daunting task of leading one of the waves of returning exiles and rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. The work was hard and slow and filled with setbacks and struggles, including enemies who came up against them. 
The great thing about Nehemiah was that he wasn't a priest and he wasn't a Levite. In fact, he wasn't in professional ministry in any way. You may not be a pastor, but God can use your experience and willingness all the same. Who knows what amazing things he may have in store for you if you'll open yourself to his leading and step out in faith. You have a great journey awaiting you. Just ask God to open your eyes to his plan. We'd love to pray for you along this journey, too. Are you facing a difficult situation? Call us and share your prayer requests at 703-771-1500. To hear more great messages from Pastor Gary Hamrick, look us up online at cornerstoneconnection.cc or subscribe to our podcast. You can also take Cornerstone Connection with you on our mobile app to listen to whenever and wherever you are. That's it for today. We pray you continue to seek God in your everyday experiences and that you feel His presence in your life today. Be sure to tune in again for another exciting edition of Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know 